listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, Today is the final uh, sermon service in our series on friends, and this one is titled The One with the Bees. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about joy. Um, The sermon in a sentence, which I try to do because I I have a habit of kind of talking about the thing I'm trying to say and then never kind of really get around to saying it. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it at the beginning. Uh, Joy is not merely the possession of happy emotion, nor is it an accidental byproduct of our circumstances. Rather, it is a practice actively cultivated in our hearts and minds. I'll say that one more time. Joy is not merely the possession of a happy emotion. It's not just feeling happy because emotions, as we know, are kind of fleeting, right? They come and they go and we experience them. And so we can't kind of count on our joy being just feeling okay in the moment. Uh, Nor is it an accidental byproduct of our circumstances. It's not something that we kind of manufacture around us. Rather, it's an inward practice. It's something that we, in essence, have to kind of choose and cultivate uh, in our hearts and our minds. So joy joy is a practice, and that's what I want to kind of talk about today. Now, a disclaimer, uh, I always do this because (laughs) I always have one disclaimer or another, it seems, in my sermons. Um, I don't do any of this. I'm bad at this. I'm not good at this. This is not something that I've done. This is something that I feel like this is one of those sermons where I'm kind of really preaching first to myself, and if you all get anything from it, awesome. But if not, it's something that I need to hear. Uh, So uh, don't think for a moment when I'm talking about joy that this is something that I have figured out. This is not something I have figured out. Cool? We good? All right? I'm not a hypocrite? All right, cool. All righty. So we titled this The One with the Bees because I have three statements that start with the word bee. And the first one is be present. Uh, I think that often our inability to live presently, to live in the moment we find ourselves in, is one of the things that robs us of our joy. And we do this a few different ways, right? We often, we live in the past, right? And that works a couple different ways. Like we can either uh, live in the past in a way that is um, kind of focused on the negative experiences we've had, right? Where we kind of find ourselves being defined by traumatic events that we've experienced or some loss or some disappointment or something like that, right? And if if we're not careful, we can find ourselves identifying with our own trauma, right? Now, I want to be clear, trauma is real. Painful experiences happen. And we do have to kind of deal, we have to work through our trauma in order not to be defined by it, right? So I don't want to say... Don't dwell on the past because of the negative things that have happened to you like we ignore them, right? That's not good. Rather, we have to kind of work through that. You with me? Cool. Uh, Or we dwell in the past via nostalgia. And I actually, the last sermon I preached was about a year ago, and it was all about this. It was all about kind of our seeming inability to remember well, right? And so if you, if you want kind of a more comprehensive one, uh, you can go back on our podcast or on our live stream and you can listen to that one. But uh, our memory, the short version of that sermon is that our memory is kind of tricky. We don't remember, remember things well, right? 
Our memory is plastic. In fact, as we kind of recall things, uh, even the act of recollection, recollection kind of shapes our memory, right? Our memory is plastic in that way. It's like making a photocopy of a photocopy. Every time we call back a memory, that's why there's the, that phenomenon where when you catch a fish, it's, first it was this big, and then it was this big, and then it was this big. It's not because we're deceitful. It's because we actually kind of are shaping, our, our memory is malleable in that way. We see this phenomenon in scripture, right? This happens in Exodus and in Numbers uh, as the kind of children of Israel are being delivered out of Egypt. Uh, every time they encounter some kind of hardship, they all of a sudden start remembering, or rather, they start misremembering what happened to them before, right? So when they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and the Red Sea's in front of them, and, and Egypt, their armies of Egypt are behind them, all of a sudden it's like, why, why did we leave Egypt? It was great. Egypt was awesome. We had, we had, we had everything we needed. You know what? This was a mistake. We shouldn't have done this. Can we maybe go back? They start kind of recasting their memory in a different light, right? Happens again when they're hungry in the wilderness and they have nothing to eat. And they're like, hey, you know where we had food? Egypt. We had three squares a day. Wasn't Egypt great? What are we doing out here? We're starving. They start remembering Egypt fondly, even though it was them that cried out to God for deliverance, right? It was their voices that moved God to deliver them. They did ask to be there, right? They were like, we don't want to be in Egypt. And then when they get the kind of the, the first signs of trouble, they start going, wait a minute, maybe it wasn't so bad, right? We do that. The third time they do that is when they arrive at the promised land, right? They actually get to where God is leading them after everything they've been through. And they see that the land is occupied and they're, you know, it's very intimidating to them. And they go, boy, hey, how, how far are we from Egypt? Like, can we go back, right? At every turn, they start kind of misremembering their past. And we do that. So, and that's the thing that kind of kills our joy, right? We start remembering the good, the good old days, the glory days, right? Or misremembering. So we can do that. That's how we live in the past often. We can likewise live in the future. We do this a couple different ways as well. We do this through our anxiety, right? Now, I'm, I'm not by nature an anxious person, uh, although I am developing. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on it. No, no, I'm not working on it. But it does seem to be, now that I've had kids... All of a the sudden, these feelings that I'm not familiar with, feelings of anxiety and fretting about the future and, you know, what are, how are we going to do this and how, you know, what kind of future are they going to have? What kind of world are they going to grow up in, you know? And I start thinking about all of the kind of calamitous things that can happen, you know, to kids. And so uh, my anxious side is flowering. Uh, <laughs> And so to this, I would say, uh, I would point us to kind of uh, Matthew 6.25. This is uh, attached to the Sermon on the Mount there where Jesus is talking about uh, kind of God's provision. And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body. Basically, he's saying, like, don't worry about kind of those kind of practical things, right? Those things that we need day to day. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor sow nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then he goes on and talks about a few other things that uh, we can worry about. And how can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? I tell you, uh, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. And then he goes on, he says, For it is the Gentiles who strive for all of these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, but strive first for the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. There's, a, uh, there's, a, there's kind of a deep, kind of primal wisdom to this, right? That we <clears throat> are not good at predicting the future. We're not good at it. We're maybe worse at predicting the future than we are at remembering the past. And I think that Jesus is kind of giving us this very practical, very kind of deep wisdom to say, tomorrow's going tomorrow's to have troubles. You can count on it. You also can't anticipate it well. And so be present, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. When I say be present, I'm trying to get at what Jesus is saying here. Be in this moment. Deal with the, the things that you have to face now. Because tomorrow will come. You get what I'm saying here? Bobby McFerrin, the great poet, prophet, says it this way, don't worry, be happy, right? That song, I know that that's kind of like, I know whenever I think of that song now, I think of that talking fish, and so it's real kind of, kind of campy and whatever in my head, but he's, he is attaching the idea that worry robs us of our happiness. And so living in the future via our anxiety can rob us of our joy right now. Got that? <clears throat> we can also live in the future by deferring our current sense of well-being. I do this a lot, so let me explain what that looks like. Uh, so I'll wake up in the morning, and I'm just like, oh, another day. <laughs> like, you know? And uh, I'm like, all right, I just need, what do I need? I need a cup of coffee. If I can just get my first cup of coffee, I'll be all right. You know? And the kids will come up, and they'll be like, daddy, daddy. And I'm like, shh, 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 shh. No, coffee first. And I'll get my cup of coffee, and I'm like, all right, I just got to, if I can just get the kids in the car, I'll be all right, right? So I need to get the kids dressed and get them loaded in the car. And I'm like, in the car, I'm like, okay, if I can just get to work, I'll be all right. But then I get to work, and I'm like, if I can just get to lunch, then I'll be all right, right? Then lunch happens. I'm like, all right, I just, if I can get through this last afternoon meeting, I'll be set. But the afternoon meeting comes and goes, and what am I thinking then? I'm thinking, well, if I can just get home, Right? And then when I get home, I'm like, if I can just get in the shower, right? If I can just get a shower, I'll be fine. But then, and if I can just get in bed, and before I know it, it's the next day, and I'm going through that all over again. I'm always punting my happiness to whatever the next thing is, right? And that happens on a day-to-day basis, but I think that also kind of, uh, kind of mirrors in our long-term lives, right? We're always kind of looking to the future anticipating the joy that could be, right? Like we have this nebulous idea of what the future might have that the present doesn't have. And so we kind of punt our joy to that unknown nebulous future. And it robs us of the joy that we can have right now in the present moment. The future is a moving target. We have to be present. So that's be present. My next B, BB, if you will, that was BA, this is BB, is be content. <clears throat> so you might say, all right, Mikhail, I'm hearing you. I can't dwell on the past, right? <clears throat> right? I have to, you know, yes, we confront the trauma that we've experienced. Yes, we heal. Yes, we, you know, move forward from the past. I can't dwell on the future because I'm no good at predicting the future. I can't, do, I can't live in anxiety, nor can I kind of constantly defer my joy to some unknown future. I can be present. I'm here. The problem is here stinks, Right? What I'm going through now, my life, maybe is a no good. You with me? We convince ourselves 
that the, that the joy that we need or want eludes us because of our present circumstances. So even when we are present, we convince ourselves that we don't have what we need to be happy, right? <clears throat> and so rather, this works a lot like kind of the future, but we think like, instead of thinking like, oh, one day it'll be like this, we think like, well, if, if only now, if only I had this, that, or the other thing, right? If only, and that, that kind of X factor takes a lot of different shapes for us, right? It might be, um, <clears throat> you know, a better job, or the right relationship, or, you know, it might take the shape of material things, right? If only I earned more money, or had a better house, or it might be kind of in our relationships, right? Like, if only I had, uh, you know, more friends, or better friends, or better looking friends, or whatever it might be, you know, I don't know what shape that takes for you, but whatever that kind of X factor that you feel like is missing in your life now is robbing your joy, <clears throat> we say, if only I could orchestrate the right set of circumstances, right? If I could have the right kind of constellation of all of the, the things that I need and, and, and my life and my, my job and my, if I could just kind of get everything right, then I would be happy. Uh, <clears throat> So we do this a lot of ways. I, I'll say this, and I'll, I'm, I'm probably taking up too much time, so I won't spend too much time here. Uh, but we do this often by comparison, right? We compare ourselves to others. And there's, <clears throat> there's an interesting, there's been some studies around earning, kind of around our, our kind of wealth, our material wealth, and how our needs are met. And there's some interesting things that we've learned. <clears throat> we've learned that kind of at every, at every income point, Right at every income level, the people at that level are convinced that there's a higher level that would bring them more happiness. So, like if you start at kind of the median income level, whatever that is, like thirty-one, thirty-two thousand dollars a year or whatever, uh, <clears throat> and ask them how much they would like, what, what would you need to be happy? They would say, well, you know, if I could just make, you know, 40 or 45 or whatever, whatever they, their kind of idealized income level is. So then if you go to that income level and you ask them what they would need, well, they'd say kind of a level above that. And then if you go to that level, they would say, and that just keeps going, right? Like, we are all convinced, even the people who you think are where you want to be think that the people above them are where they want to be. Does that, you get what I'm saying there? Everyone is convinced that they don't have enough. And another kind of related study that Princeton did <clears throat> showed that there's actually a drop-off in happiness. Like at a certain level, money kind of does buy happiness, right? Like poverty is, can bring about kind of human suffering, so poverty is not good. And so people who earn more than kind of poverty levels of wealth actually are happier in their lives. But then there reaches a certain point, and it's surprisingly low, where there's this huge drop-off, where like it doesn't make you happier, and it actually works the other way, where actually the more money you have, the less happy you are. So not only are we constantly comparing ourselves, oh, and what, one more interesting feature that I found fascinating is that there were happy people at every level of income, but the people who were happy were usually people who were surrounded by people who had less than them. Like, that comparison worked in a really kind of weird, morbid way where, like, you didn't have to be rich, but if you earned this much and everyone around you earned this much, you were happy, right? Isn't that kind of twisted? That's how we are. That's how we work, right? Comparison robs us of our joy. And I'm telling you that it's a lie. It's the original lie, right? It's the original lie of the serpent that said to Eve, 
Did God really say that you have everything you need? You know what you really need? It's the original lie that we, what we have is not enough and we need more, right? That's kind of the original impulse in us. Like I said, I'm going to try and move quickly here. So we need to be content. How do we practice contentment? Well, here I'm going to read a passage from Philippians chapter 4. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at least you have revived your concern for me. I always feel like Paul's kind of a little sarcastic. He's like, hey, I'm so glad that you finally care about me again. Right? It's a little snark. You find that with Paul. Paul's capable of a little bit of snark, and it's, uh, sometimes it's not a little bit. <laughs> Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it, I'm sure. <laughs> you can almost hear him say. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty, and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We all know that passage, right? That's a real popular one. You see that on bumper stickers and tattoos because it's super encouraging in, in its kind of encapsulated form. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But Paul is talking about enduring suffering, enduring loss and disappointment. He's not talking about how God lets him, you know, dunk in the NBA or, or you know, knock out the, the title champ. You know, you hear athletes use this passage all the time. He's talking about enduring suffering. He's talking about sustaining, being sustained during lack. So... <clears throat> One thing I want to say, contentment is not a willful denial of what's real, right? Paul is not saying, hey, I know what it's like to be hungry, but that's, that doesn't matter. Like, Paul is not talking about how our sufferings, Paul is not advocating for a contentment that is a denial of what's wrong. You hear what I'm saying? Like, it's not saying everything's fine, it's not sweeping our pain under the rug. It's not kind of, it's not that, uh, I grew up with a lot of this around me. Like, it's not that, like, I'm too blessed to be stressed kind of Christianity, right? I'm not advocating for that, right? I'm not saying that contentment, contentedness in the midst of suffering is just pretending like things are fine. I'll put it this way. Uh, so this last summer, we had the Summer Olympics, right? They were supposed to be last year, but then they were this year. And so, you know, uh, I purposed myself this year. I've, I've never been interested in, in the Olympics before, really. Uh, you know, I, I like the sports I like, and none of them are, seem to be in the Olympics, so I don't really typically follow it, right? But this year, I was like, you know what? I am going to care about the Olympics this year because it's a big deal. It's in COVID. It was supposed to be last year. I'm, I'm all in. I'm on board. I'm going to, like, find out who's playing, like, who are the favorites. I'm going to, like, follow it like I care about it, right? And so, you know, the Olympics start, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm trying to, you know, I, I've got, I'm watching track and field events, which are weird, right? There's a lot of, like, like who decided that these were sports, right? Like shot put, like shot put, the, where they, you know, the, with the, it's just like a little cannonball, and it's like, throw it this way and see who can throw it farther. Like, who decided that was a sport? But that's like a legacy sport. That's been around forever. It's a big deal. And they take it seriously. 
and you see people who, I mean, you watch because you want to see people do amazing things, right? You want to see people succeed. But you also kind of want to see it when they fail, right? Like, you, you know what I'm talking about? Like, no one, I'm not, look, I'm not saying, like, you want people to do badly. But you, that's part of it, too, right? Like, that's part of, you, you, you know, you want to see, like, you want to see the highs and the lows, right? That's, that's all part of it. So evidently, in the Summer Olympics, kind of the crown jewel of everything is the gymnastics competition. Like, I don't know if it's like that for every country, but America seems to really take gymnastics seriously. And we've done very well historically with gymnastics. And I saw something in gymnastics that was different from the other sports. So like, if someone is trying to do a high jump or a pole vault, right, and they mess up, they hit the pole or the pole snaps, that happened once, and that was bananas. I was just like, whoa, like, like it snapped. And I was just like, that's crazy. You know, you see the people, the anguish on their face. They're so frustrated, and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll throw things. They'll get, you know, they'll stop, and they'll be mad, and they'll be angry, and they'll go, and their coach will, like, kind of, you know, give them, give them one of these on the face and say, hey, you know, get back into it. And, and then they got to go, and they got to try again. It's not like that for gymnastics. Gymnastics is totally different, right? So this girl comes out there, and I don't know what country she's from, but it's the... Uh, it's the floor exercise, right, where they go out and they do like these tumbling routines. There's like a little bit of dance involved in it. And she goes and she kind of squares up for her first big, I don't know the terms, because like I said, I don't, I don't typically watch this. Her first pass, thank you. <clears throat> and so she goes and she's doing this like flip tumble, you know, all this thing. And she falls out of the ring. And it's just devastating. And I'm just like, oh. You know, how sad for her. And then something remarkable happens. She, go, she comes up and she goes, <sighs> and starts like doing it. <laughs> she's, and I go, I tell Carol, I go, what, what is she doing? And she's like smiling and doing her, you know, doing her whatever the moves are. And I go, what is she doing? And Carol's like, well, she's, she's got to finish. I go, she has to finish? She just fell. She just ate it hard. It was bad. And so she goes up for her second pass. Thank you. She goes to the other corner and she, you know, she kind of squares up and she, you know, she, she does the whole. And I'm she, it's worse than the first time. She just ragdolls out. Like she's outside. She's not just off the stage. She's like out in the chairs. It was bad. And she gets up and she's like. <laughs> And, and she starts going again. And I'm like, they're making her finish? And she's like, it's fine. It's fine. Like, <laughs> it's funny to me. <laughs> she has to get up there and finish. And even after she's done, she goes down to like receive her sco scores. And she's smiling in tears. And it's fine. Like, and her team is like high-fiving her. And it's like, it was weird. I don't get it. I told you at the beginning, I don't get gymnastics. I still don't get gymnastics. That's not what I'm advocating for. I'm not saying we go through life where things are going terribly. Like I asked Carol after the first fall, I was like, and she's, I was like, what's she doing? She's like, well, she's going she's gonna to finish. And I go, well, can she still win? And Carol's like, no, 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 she's done. Like her Olympic dreams are dashed. Like she's done. And I'm just like, well, what, why are they making her finish? And she's like, I don't know. She's got she's to finish, finish the thing. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to go through life just putting on a smile and wiping away our tears and pretending like everything's on, uh, like not on fire. Sometimes everything's on fire. Sometimes things are bad. But we 
in those moments, we have to kind of, that, that's why I say like joy is not just from our circumstances and it's not just like something that we can flip a switch on. It's something that we have to actively kind of cultivate. It's a practice. It's a discipline. It's something that, I, I like the word cultivation, right? It makes me think of like, like a farm. And so you, you have to like plow the fields and you have to like prune and water and, and, and it might be like several generations of crops before you get what you're looking for, right? It's the long game. So it's not, we have to be present, right? We have to be content with what we have, right? We have to, we have to not uh, kind of imagine that if we can just get things right in our life, then joy kind of happens, right? It's not an accidental byproduct. And our last B is be hopeful. So again, I'm not suggesting that we muster uh, hope that is a stubborn denial of reality, and I'm not advocating for rose-colored glasses, and I'm not talking about a saccharine kind of willful ignorance of trouble. I'm talking about a hope that has its feet on the ground, but that has its eye on the horizon. That's, that's the way that hope takes shape for a Christian, right? Like <clears throat> the Thessalonians passage that, I, that we had read earlier um, is an interesting thing. Paul is writing to a church where he tells them to rejoice always, right? We all know that passage pretty well. And it's similar to what he writes in, I think, Galatians, where he says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In both of those instances, he's writing to churches that are going through some pretty serious stuff, that are going through some pretty bad times. But he's writing to them and saying, rejoice always <clears throat> because, uh, and, and, and when he's writing to the church in, in Thessalonica, he's writing to them because he can't be there in person because when he was there, he had to flee the city for his life. Like he was, he was going to die if he stayed. So he had to leave and he's writing back to them, rejoice always. So where does our, if our joy comes from our hope, where does our hope come from? Our hope is an eschatological hope. What I mean by that is that <clears throat> our hope uh, is in kind of how the, the final things, right? The, the eschatological means the eschaton. Eschaton means the final things, right? Our hope is for kind of the end of everything, that in, in everything, all of the hurt that we experience, all of the pain that we've endured, all of the, the woundedness and harm and death and loss and disappointment and everything that we would think robs us of our joy is somehow culminates in Jesus into something that's beautiful and good, right? We're, Carol, uh, no, Carol didn't mention that was the run through. Uh, Revelation, we're working through the book of Revelation in our Bible study right now. And this week is the last week. This week is the vision of the new Jerusalem at the end. And it's kind of this grand finale. And there's this idea in it that everything that's happened up to it, no matter how terrible, no matter how severe, no matter how seemingly final it is, is penultimate. It's not the final thing. It's, 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 some, it's before the final thing. That the final word on everything is Jesus on the throne and the, the two trees with the tree of life and the leaves are for the healings of nations. The final word is that there is healing. There's hope. There's, there's fullness. There's, there's goodness at the end of the story. And uh, I, I was making the Bible study... <clears throat> Uh, study guide this week, and I was reading uh, 21 and, uh, 20 and 21 and 22, and uh, I, had a, I had this kind of experience where I was just, I found myself crying. Like, before I even realized it, I was just crying because of the beauty of it. And it reminded me of, 
the scene from the end of Return of the King in Lord of the Rings where, uh, so Frodo, so spoiler, in case, I mean, you know, the movies have been out for a while, you all should know the story. Uh, Frodo has just destroyed the ring in Mount Doom, and he loses consciousness on the slopes of this exploding mountain, and he thinks for sure he's going to die. But then he wakes up and he finds himself in, the, in, in a bed in Rivendell, and he's, his wounds are, are bound up, and he's, he's alive. And he's reunited with all of his friends who he thought were for sure was dead, right? He thought all of his friends were gone and that all hope had been lost, and yet here he's with them. And then he sees Gandalf, who he thought had died from the first book, right? He thought, like, that's from the first movie, Gandalf died, and he's reunited with Gandalf, and he says, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. And then Gandalf laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Is every sad thing going to come untrue? That's our hope. That's where our joy comes from. It's not from getting everything right now. It's not from contentment or, or pleasure or the absence of pain now. It's even though things are bad now, we have this grand hope, this capital H hope, if you will, that in the end, every sad thing is going to come untrue. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what that looks like. I can't imagine it. I can't fathom it. I can't fathom that our hope is in Jesus healing us in a way that doesn't just erase us. It doesn't erase our past and our pain. But that somehow even everything terrible that we've experienced gets kind of assimilated into this goodness, this eternal and final goodness. I've heard it explained like this, right? It's like we view uh, our lives and history and reality like we're seeing the back of a tapestry that's being woven, right? And it, it looks wrong. All the colors are wrong. All the shapes are wrong. All the lines are wrong. It doesn't make any sense to us. And that in the end, Jesus is going to kind of flip the whole thing around, and we're going to go, oh. And everything that we thought was a mistake, everything that we thought was wrong, everything that we thought was an accident, is part of the final image. It's there. But it's beautiful. And it's good. And that's where our joy comes from. It's from being hopeful. And that is our hope. Rejoice always is from the First Thessalonian passages that we read. <clears throat> uh, that phrase, rejoice always, it's its own verse. And it's the second shortest verse in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. I just learned that this week. Does anyone know what the first shortest verse in the Bible is? Say it louder. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. I don't think that there's like a grand connection to be made there, but I find it interesting anyway that those are the two shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. Rejoice always. I think these are things that we hold in both hands. The ability to weep with those who weep. The ability to experience the fullness of the sufferings of Christ. But in that, even in that, and even through that, we rejoice always. Again, I don't know how to do it. I'm still figuring it out. But I do believe it's what we are called to do. Uh, one last thought uh, before I 
get off the stage here. Um, <clears throat> this series uh, is ending today, friends. And we've been uh, trying to communicate these kind of quintessential Christian affections to you all, not purely because, or not merely because, we want you to practice them in your own lives so that you can find a degree of equanimity for yourselves, although we do, and you should, and it will. We want to communicate to all of us, to ourselves, to you, to, to, to the world, what kind of church we're called to be. We want to be this kind of church, the church that has hope, the church that has gratitude, the church that has courage, the church that, that is friends with one another, that in the context of this relationship, Jesus can do what Jesus does. You know, Carol mentioned, uh, Carol said during worship today, uh, that passage, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there with them in their midst. Like, that's not because Jesus is a diva, right? It's not because Jesus is just like, well, there needs to be at least two people there or else I'm not going to show up. It's not worth my time if there's just one, <laughs> right? Why is that? Why, do, why does there need to be two or more gathered? Well, it's because that's how Jesus intends to be understood is through the love and fellowship we have with one another. We need each other to know God. We can't fully, truly know God alone. We can't. It's like one hand trying to clap, right? Like, you need, we need each other. That in that context, something amazing can happen. I want to tell you this story real quick of, of how uh, Christianity came to Russia. It was the end of the 10th century, and Russia was mostly kind of, um, you know, disparate tribes and cities, states, and people who have different kind of cultures and relation, uh, uh, religious practices, and they all worship different kind of pagan gods. And uh, Prince Vladimir the Great, uh, or Vladimir of Kiev, decided that he wanted to uh, unite all of Russia, right? And so he wanted to make kind of a great Russian empire. And he thought, well, you know, I, I see how other empires have done it. And I know that one thing we need is kind of a unified religion. That really goes a long way to nation building, right? If we have kind of a shared religion. He's like, right now we've got a whole bunch of different gods and, and idols and things, and so that's not going to work. We need, we need a religion. So I'm in the market, basically, he said. So he sent representatives to uh, Bulgaria and Kazakh and to, um, to the Byzantine Empire, and he said, go, go try some of their different religions and report back to me, and you tell me which one you think is the, is the religion for us that we need. And so they went out, and you know the people from Bulgaria. They kind of came back from the the Germanic people, and and they were, um, you know, they were primarily kind of kind of Catholic. And they said, okay, I mean, tell me about Catholicism. And they were like, well, you know, it's it's good, it's pretty good. Uh, is they're they're kind of just super like serious. Like they they just they were described as plain and dour. They were like, it's just kind of, it's you know, it's it's not. I don't think it's for us. It just doesn't feel right. And they're like, okay, cool. Uh, and so then they came back from, from, uh, from Muslim lands, and they came back and reported on Islam, and they were like, yeah, you know, there's, there's some good things happening there. Um, uh, they, they, uh, they don't eat pork. And, and uh, you know, Vladimir was like, well, that's, that's like half of what we, we, we can't not have, eat pork. That's like half our diet. And they're like, yeah, okay. And they don't drink. And they were like, well, then that's the other half. Like, we, like <laughs> that's basically, 
That's basically what he said. He, he said, these are two joys that we can't live without, eating pork and, and drinking alcohol. So, uh, so they were, that was right. That was a non-starter right out the door. And then they came back and they said, well, we, you know, the other was reported and they said, well, you know, we went to, we went to the, the, the Jewish people, to the Hebrew faith, and, uh, you know, again, a lot of good things there, but they don't, they are all about the temple and they don't have a temple. Like, and they're real sad about it. Like, it's a big deal that they don't have a temple. Uh, and they kind of took that as a sign that God had kind of abandoned them, right? That God, that they're all about the temple and they don't have a temple anymore. So they're like, all right, those three aren't going to work. And then emissaries came back from the Greek Orthodox Church. And they said, we went into the Greek lands and we were led into a place where they serve their God. And we didn't know where we were heaven or on earth. And we don't even know how to talk about this. All we know is that God lives there with their people and their service is better than any other in our country. And they go on to describe the beauty and the joy and the sincerity of the faith of the people that they went to stay with. And to the question of whether or not Russia should adopt Orthodox Christianity as, their, as its religion, he said, we cannot forget the beauty since each person, if he eats something sweet, will not take something bitter afterwards. So we cannot worship pagan gods anymore. What they encountered was so rich, so beautiful, so joyous, that they said, we can't, we don't even want to taste anything else because we don't want to lose the taste of this in our mouth. We can't untaste what we've tasted. We're communicating this, this series, this idea, these, these uh, concepts, not because they're good for us, although they are, and not because they can bring us joy and fulfillment, and they can, but because we want to be this kind of church. We want to practice this kind of joy, this kind of beauty, that when we encounter people, when people encounter us, it's so beautiful that they don't want to try anything else, that they don't want to lose the flavor of what they've experienced. That's what we're called to be. That's more than anything. I want to be that kind of place where we can be somewhere. And I know we say this all the time, but I, I love it. Where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. That last statement is a statement of hope. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. Any wound can be healed. Any chain can be broken. Any life can be lived more full. Anything's possible. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.